Welcome to Team Building Cultures, the podcast designed to deliver tools and tips for improving team communication, collaboration, and fostering a culture where teams thrive. Now, here's your host, Beverly Hathorn, owner of Strategic HR Consultants. Hello, listeners, and thank you so much for joining another episode of Team Building Cultures. Today, I'm extremely excited to speak with the very well-accomplished Victoria Peltier. Victoria is a 20-plus-year corporate executive and board director. She's currently managing director at Accenture. Colleagues and employers have nicknamed Victoria the turnaround queen because she inspires and empowers her teams and clients to change mindsets and drive growth in business, leadership, and culture. As someone who does not subscribe to the status quo, she is always ready for new challenges, becoming one of the youngest chief operating officers at the age of 24. I remember what I was doing at 24 and I wasn't a COO. Okay. She's also a president by age 35 and a CEO by age 41. Victoria was recognized as one of the 2023 Women of Influence by South Florida Business Journal, 2022 Top 30 Most Influential Business Leaders in Tech by CIO Look, 2022 Most Influential Entrepreneur of the Year by World Magazine, 2021's Top 50 Business Leaders in Technology by Insight Magazine, and a Mentor of the Year by Women in Communications and Technology in 2020. Also, HSB Bank awarded her the Diversity and Inclusion in Innovation Award in 2019, and to top it off, she was IBM's number one global social seller, ranked by LinkedIn in 2019 and 2020. Victoria is a prolific motivational and inspirational speaker. Victoria has delivered keynotes discussing the importance of personal branding, which we all know is very important, and its impact on your professional growth. She's been an empathetic leader in empowering employees, and the power of DEI on corporate cultures and building a life of resilience. I am so thrilled to speak to her today, this very accomplished young woman who has done so much. So, Victoria, I will just start by welcoming you to the show. Thank you for having me. I'm sorry that bio was quite the mouthful. Well, I wouldn't have taken out not one single thing. I think your bio is very impressive. I think the work that you've done is very relevant to my show. And it's also very relevant to business leaders. So I'm sure everybody will want to know all about you. This is very uh, impressive. So tell me about, this is where I'm, there's so much to start with, but this is where I'm going to start. How did you become a COO at the age of 24? <laughs> well, Beverly, I started working at age 11. Um, you know, I'm, you know, adopted by a family that didn't have amazing socioeconomic status. My dad was a janitor, my mom a secretary. And um, although I never had to worry about food or clothes, there was 
little else, um, room for a little else. So if I wanted anything, I needed to pay for it. So I started working at 11 to, you know, I don't know, get the Sony Walkman that, you know, my friends had, and that, that definitely will age me. Um, and so, you know, from 11 to at a hair salon that I worked at to by 14, I was already in, in leadership. I was actually the assistant manager for a shoe store that I worked at. I graduated at 16 and went to university and worked through a bank while I was in university. And one of the things I believe we have very much control over is, um, you know, within a work context is our um, focus on our skills and our own development and the work ethic. And so that, you know, sh you know, shine well at the bank that I work for. And I got promoted pretty quickly. So within six months, I was also in a leadership role there. And by the time I graduated university, they'd moved me across the country and given me an even more senior role, worked there for a number of years, and I got recruited by, and this goes to sort of a strong personal brand as well. I've been very fortunate that much of the roles that I've been um, hired into have been a result of being directly recruited. And um, I met a couple of them, you know, the ticks in the boxes, if you will, by this, it was an outsourcing company. Uh, and to step in as COO, big stretch role, totally admit that. Uh, but I, they wanted me because I had financial services experience and they had many like banking clients in and running contact center and an outsourcing environment was predominantly contact center. You know, back then it was lots of telemarketing and I had some experience with that at the bank, um, customer servant tech support. Uh, and I presented well, you know, the one thing I'm, um, I'm not a fan of this notion of fake it till you make it, except when it comes to showing up and appearing to be quite confident. You need to be careful because confidence is often interpreted as competence, uh, you know, for many, but certainly I needed to show that I was 24. Um, so again, I had lots of the skills they were looking, um, looking for, but I, I still had to lean into something I was quite uncomfortable with. I was not only 24, I was a new mother. Uh, as well. And this came with new demands. So I need, knew I would need to quickly leverage not only the existing team that I would be leading, who knew more about some of the functional areas I had no experience in. I was leading technology. I was leading um, you know, HR uh, at that point, everything really except for finance. And so I hired um, or leaned heavily on the people that were in the organization that knew more um, or different than I did. And that was really the trajectory for me from a uh, my career standpoint ever since, you know, I wanted to be a lawyer. That's very much far from it. But I knew that I enjoyed the complexity and working in this business to business environment. Uh, and I really enjoyed working for and leading people. Wow, that is awesome. You said a couple of things that I wanted to kind of uh, maybe reiterate on. One, you kind of let us know that you can teach people to be who it is that you want them to be, especially if they come confident, not overly arrogant, but if they come confident and what they're saying is, I'm confident I can learn to do what you need me to do and I can be successful at it. That's an awesome concept. And also I want to just chat really quickly about how you hired the people to build a team 
to make you all successful rather than taking on that whole thing. I know how to do all this, that arrogance. I don't need it. I can do this myself. And when you hire people to help you uh, to grow in your area and allow them to grow in your area, that's a recipe for success because servant leaders don't consider themselves as being able to do everything. They hire people to help them get where we're all trying to get, which is to a successful route. So I think that's just fabulous. And I'm really impressed to hear someone of your stature feel that that was a good thing to do and you were successful at it. So tell me about your Women of Influence Award for the South Florida Business Journal. How did they come to recognize you for that? That was recent uh, for 2023. Yes, yes. And I actually, they just celebrated the winners of the award at a luncheon, which was phenomenal to meet these other like powerhouse women as well. So I had been nominated uh, for it. And um, actually Accenture, who I'm currently working for, had supported and put a, you know, vouch for me around a lot of the work I was doing. And so it's called Women of Influence, but I would arguably say a big part of what they look for is impact as well. Okay. And so part of the nomination was really about the impact I've had in supporting other women. So I'm very active in our women's employee resource group. And I'm also the executive sponsor for um, the LGBT, our pride employee resource group as well. And I also take a ton of time just to coach and engage with others, whether it's new hires into our organization. And I do that not only within our organization, I spend a lot of time as a public speaker out there speaking on things that, um, you know, in my hope, you know, will have great impact. So some of what you read in my bio around what I refer to as human-centered leadership, which that uh, coupled with many other things is what actually I believe um, drives great culture. I think culture is the outcome. And so that kind of work in diversity and inclusion uh, and being using my position um, of in senior leadership uh, as um you know, I mean, that's a privilege and using that position to be in a position to use my voice to advocate uh, for for others. So it was all of those things that um, thankfully um, had me um, win that award. Wonderful. That's that's really impressive. Again, you said a couple of things that I, I just want to kind of back back over. You talk about human centered leadership. Can you expand on that and tell us what you what you mean by that, what you feel that is? There's like a textbook definition, but how do you <laughs> what do you feel that is? I think it means many things, Beverly. As you said, I think, you know, there's probably a one-liner we could, you know, get or pull out and see what it says on the web about that. But for me, it means many, many things. And so first and foremost, you know, I think there's we have the opportunity as leaders to recognize that we are all humans and there's a great amount of humanity that needs to come together as we, you know, strive to deliver for our employers and the customers that we're serving. And that means, you know, this, this whole person that shows up every day is more than the, what they've learned at work and the productivity metrics that they're measured against. And that impacts how they show up and how they can deliver at work. So, you know, from a leadership perspective, it's about understanding that. And for me, that also means about building authentic, trusted relationships with the people that I'm fortunate to lead. 
uh, and and engage with quite couldn't even those that I'm not leading directly, you know, within the organization. And so it's being authentic. It's building trusted relationships. It's understanding, you know, significantly more around about our employees than just what we see on their CVs, what motivates them, what are their goals and objectives from a career perspective. And sometimes it's actually testing and having to push that and maybe help help work them with them through what that looks like. And it's also things like recognizing this paradox that exists sometimes between the decisions people make. And I think the you know best example of that, and I think COVID changed a lot of that for us around some of our priorities. I use this paradox of like, you know, we want, you know, we feed our pets like gourmet food and then people go out and, you know, buy McDonald's for themselves, fast food for themselves. And that can exist. And how do we lead in those kind of um, situations? And I also think it's about being, you know, trust trusted uh, by our teams, recognizing that we will have their back uh, and support them. And so that trust also comes with not only the authenticity, but the vulnerability we show as leaders and being as transparent as we can in our communications. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I, I'm in total alignment with you there, particularly where you talk about the trust and the relationship building and the helping your employees get where they're best suited for, you know, find out, build a relationship with them. Don't just be a shadowy figure over in the corner, you know, counting numbers and saying, oh, you didn't make it this month. And, you know, so, you know, just, just build a relationship with them and find out where, be authentic with them and find out where they can best serve. It may not be on your team. You know, you may, you may find that, your one of your team members has the potential to do really well somewhere else. And then as a servant leader, I feel like it's your job, especially if it's their desire to help them get there. And we've got to build those relationships so that we get to know people and so that people open up to us in that way. But you've got to be authentic in order to build that relationship. You got to be who you are too. And you can't just expect them to be another cog in the wheel, you know, that turns this big machine, let people know where they fit in, how their job impacts, you know, the organization and the company, and let them know how important they are to themselves. So I'm I'm in complete alignment with you on those things. Tell me about your perspectives and your formulas for DE&I. Tell me about that. I refer to a number of things, but very much from a DEI perspective, strategic intentionality. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I've been like an advocate um, around DEI for over 20 years, uh, long before we had sort of the, the formalized employee resource groups. And it comes from a place of my own experience uh, as a female queer executive. So at 24, I was married to a woman before now being married to my husband. Uh, So I was the youngest by at least two decades, the only woman and queer uh, at that point as well. So some of it stemmed from my own um, experience and not wanting others to feel like they were the only, yet also recognizing the privilege I have as a white woman born in North America. And it was the the outsourcing environment um, is not always the destination career. It is a mm-hmm. career that people think 
telemarketing and, you know, customer service and like it's, those are tough jobs. Uh, and so people generally take those jobs when they're maybe new immigrants to the country or they're between jobs. And a lot, I realized the incredible diversity I had in the teams. And so to get them to stay as long as possible, knowing turnover is exceptionally high and perform in jobs that are a tough slog, I needed to create a better place where people felt like they could show up as them, them whole selves, their whole selves to the work. They felt, you know, that it was an inclusive environment and that they belonged. So I set that all up as like, this is the backdrop. 20 something years have been focused on it. But then the strategic intentionality is now we have these formalized ERGs and programs. And in some parts of the, the world, regulations around what we must have from a diverse workforce perspective or supplier perspective. And what I see is there's been this huge focus over the last number of years around the diversity in the workforce and hiring diverse employees, but very little around the piece I talked around about around creating the inclusive environment, this culture where people feel like there's opportunity for them, that they are getting paid equitably, and that they quite honestly just belong in that. So the need to be strategic around recognizing that the where to go and hire diverse talent, and it's not all as we think about gender or race um, or sexuality, that, you know, recognizing the intersectionality that exists, some of the, you know, invisible pieces around whether it's neurodiversity um, or other disabilities that people may have, veteran status, all those kinds of things, being really intentional around where we go to find that talent. And over the last number of years, um, we've seen much more of a shift towards thinking about skills versus job titles as, you know, business transforms. Whether you're formally a technology or company, we are all technology companies with the use of technology to enable how we work um, mm -hmm. and products or services we deliver to our clients. Very different skills come with that. Um, no, not everything can be, you know, automated with the likes of the generative AI and chat GPTs of the world, but so a lot can be. And so how we work is going to be different. So looking at the skills and it's not all of those need to come with four-year college degrees, for example. So the intentionality around what, what do we have as a baseline in our workforce? What kind of skills do we need to find and how do we find diversity in those skills and maybe build them? In some cases we need to start, you know, in, in, in middle school or high school to develop that. And then also intentionality around the kind of um, culture we have. And as I said earlier, I believe culture is the outcome. So, you know, building intentionally um, policies and procedures um, that align and then hiring leadership um, that speak and act or behave with a kind, you know, of language and, and action we need to create those kinds of positive environments um, so that people aren't running out the back door as fast as they might come in. And then there's a whole other, you know, piece around that. So are we evaluating again? Are we paying people equitably? Are we creating the right kind of opportunity for that diverse talent? Sadly, we're sitting in a time right now where many companies are reacting to the market and looming recession and laying off people. Are mm -hmm. we evaluating the staff that are going to be let go, ensuring it's not first in, last out, in which case we're taking steps back on our diversity initiatives? And so again, a balanced approach around 
who's going to stay in the organization to make sure we continue to maintain kind of the diversity. So that's what I would say around strategic intentionality. And there's much, much more to that around the technology that can help us with it, but, um, you know, and getting support from other, um, you know, partners to help support because most organizations are not going to be experts. They might be able to hire some, um, but to, to get help as well in all of that. Well, that's interesting you would uh, put it that way because that was going to be my next question. How do we get there? How do we, you know, how do we find the technology and the consultants or, you know, whoever may offer assistance on that? How do we get to that point? Because diversity means more than just um, a certain amount of this race or a certain amount of um uh, this culture, or a certain amount of this, you know, from this country or immigrant, you know, it means more than that. You can just hire those. You could just look at the numbers and say, oh, we need three more black women, you know, hire three more. But how do you, how are, do you become, as to use your word, intentional about hiring the people who are going to support the organization, drive the organization forward while living their own dreams or plans or whatever. How do we go about finding these people and vetting this? And how do we do that? Well, I think, you know, first of all, most come, one of actually over the last couple of years, one of the most posted jobs and increase we've seen is in chief diversity officers. And I'm slightly saddened um, that I, I think some companies have done it more because they believe it's the right thing to do and haven't created the environment yeah. around the chief diversity officer. But I do think it's important that you've got, I think everyone in the organization is accountable for it, but I do think you need a SME in the business and let's call that the chief diversity officer who's got deep knowledge of a number of the actions that we need to take and the partners we might need to be able to choose to bring in and help support us. Um, but that person's helping with reporting, um, education, like there's a lot of coordination. They don't own it. That's what I, I see that and hear that from too many C chief diversity officers, CDOs. But I, so I do think you need one. And I think they need to sit, you know, a strategic place in the organization. Usually it's to the CHRO. If not, it's great to see it at the CEO's at least extended leadership table. Um, so they're having mm -hmm. the conversation. And you, you need to have measurement to understand the impact. And so here's where, whether it's not just the CDO, but you can find consultants who can come in and help support that. There's more than looking at the finite diversity metrics within the workforce. It is things like, like I looked at, there was one organization I worked at. Uh, we brought in in, our, in the, the entry-level role right out of college, 53% um, women at that job grade. And within a couple of years, we saw the job grade that's up here, all of a sudden, this was what happened. Instead, there was this massive decline, several roles up for women in the workforce. And so then it's like, okay, well, what is happening? Did we not create the right kind of environment, coaching mm -hmm. and opportunity, flexible environment? If they chose to be married or partnered and have children, was that affecting it? So there's metrics like that. There's employee engagement surveys. There's, um, you know, kind of the pulse type surveys to measure the in inclusivity and engagement uh, of the teams you know, to hiring, you know, you know, that the talent acquisition team is struggling, then, you know, finding other partners who have relationships uh, with 
you know, the, whether it's traditionally, you know, black colleges to, you know, veterans organizations to LGBT organizations, like finding partners to help support that. But I also think they ne there needs to be a significant amount of measurement around us to hold everyone accountable, you know, to whether yes. they're moving the needle and whether progress is actually taking place or not. Yes. Yes. Cause I think, um, there's a lot of managers or leaders who suffer with the uh, like me syndrome and they tend to promote and move along people who are like themselves, which of course leads to things like groupthink and you know the uneven numbers and everything. So I'm wondering what's the best way to communicate because the employees are, how they feel about this is important as well. Some employees, I think a lot of employees, feel that a lot of those diversity metrics and objectives are just because you have to do it and you don't really care. You're just doing, you know, organizations are just doing what they have to do. So you see the bare minimum, like if an organization needs one female leader at a certain level, they'll only have one. You know, how do we yeah. communicate? How do organizations communicate to employees that, no, we really are working to be a diverse corporation or a diverse organization? Myself, I've done uh, blogs on diversity where I say diversity is our superpower. That's where we get all this knowledge, this like various knowledge and understanding and perspectives of how things are done. But how, do, how does an organization communicate to uh, its employees that, no, we're serious about this. We really want this to happen. We're not just checking off another box. Well, so I think we do need to stop at the top. So we need to demonstrably show that there is diversity in leadership. And if it's a company that has a board in the board as well, mm -hmm. and publish our statistics. Now there's the challenge is, as we talk about this intersection, and multitude of different diversities, but a lot of it is about self-identification and not everyone's comfortable with that. So what we tend to see is gender primarily in the US, we can we, we tend to see a little bit more around uh, race as well, but in other countries, not. So again, it's primarily based upon like self-ID or the only thing we can measure is gender. But in, in the opportunity in which we have data, publish it. I also think we need to, be really clear around our intention um, and aspirations to improve. You know, so I like, you know, at, at Accenture many years ago, you know, there was a, before I ever worked there, it, you know, there was a statement that came out in terms of the, the fact that they were going to achieve gender parity by 2025. Um, and so we published, you know, in this list last year, our executive promotions and as um, we're at in the high 40s, and we now have 47% of our executives globally are women. So wow. you see the progress. But I think many companies need to publish that. And you know what? Many are very, very far from gender parity and pay equity, let alone the other metrics that we might actually be able to measure around people of color, particularly in, in the US, again, one that we actually typically can measure. And so I think we also need to state, here's our action plan to move that forward. And it, that starts with, we have a chief diversity officer who's going to be tasked with, you know, whether it's, you know, unconscious bias, you know, training, um, who's going to be doing the reporting, who's going to help in leading business or employee resource groups. Here's the policies we have, whether that's supporting same sex and our benefits programs, all of these outlining those pieces 
Uh, it's talking about the funding that we do around employee resource groups and anything we want to do more broadly in the community. And that's the other thing. It's, it's not just about our workforce. Who do we choose as business partners and vendors? Mm -hmm. Are we creating products and services that are equitable to those who would buy products and services and the outcomes? It's speaking through all of those, you know, elements. And again, what, you know, demonstrable steps we're taking to see progress. But let's be realistic. I mean, it's not, it's not happening overnight, but the fact that we're going to commit to moving this forward. And then you know what? Reporting at it at the end of each fiscal year to talk about mm. whether we achieved or not. And if we didn't or not where we wanted to be, here's what we're going to do to pivot or do differently to have greater success next year. Yes, that is that's very great advice because once you put it out there, uh, once you've told people, your community's watching, your employees are watching, your customers are watching, and they're going to hold you to it. You will lose customers. You will lose employees. And uh, the community will stop giving you those advantages if you don't support diversity, because your customer base is diverse. Your community is diverse. And when I say community, I mean the, the people in the air, you know, where your buildings are, where your repair places are, where your, um, you know, where your maintenance shops are, where your trucks are, that is all going to be diverse. So if you've made a commitment to that and you publish that and you let people know that, then they're going to start to watch, okay, let's see what they actually do. And when they see you doing that, you build your credibility, you know, and it just makes it better for the organization and for the company, because now you've exhibited that that is important to you. You know, you've okay. exhibited how you plan to grow and move your, move the needle forward on that. That's that's great advice. Don't just keep it to yourself. To tell everybody what you're going to do and then show us what you're doing. And that will help the employees have a little bit more commitment and understanding to your plans for building a, a diverse employee staff. So tell me a little bit about branding. What do you what what can you offer us on branding? I, everybody needs to know how to brand themselves and you know how to get to the place that they want to be. So tell us a little bit about that. You know, one of the things I attribute pretty significantly a lot of my, you know, career success to has been building a really strong brand. And and I don't think 20 years ago, I had the vernacular for it. I think I, I, but I made this switch from business like to consumer and banking into this world of business to business. And what I quickly realized is I was forced to go out and network and go to conferences. You see this like really extroverted woman in front of you now who does all this public speaking, but I like, I was not the, the same confident woman in my twenties. And like the thought of networking and engaging it like that made me really uncomfortable. But I knew as I was evaluating and leading now there's our sales and our client management team that how we needed to be different than our competitors. Like I didn't want it to be a, a race to the, the, the lowest price. So what's the differentiation, not only in the services that we would be delivering to our clients, but many people do business with people they like and trust, and therefore okay. they want to do business with. And so I realized how it, important it was for myself and the team to be known for that. And so over the years, I realized that we need to focus on this broader brand. And I would tell your listening audience, start as early as possible. I joke with my, my older son, who's 
23 and coming out of college for, you know, um, computer science and getting his first quote unquote real job, as he says, he's, um, and I'm like, buddy, you need to get on LinkedIn. And he's like, oh, but that's for, he goes, mom, that's for old people. I'm like, buddy, that's who's hiring you. Right. So like, let's start now and kind of building that brand. You can pivot and change over time. But what I would also say is I think, I mean, your personal brand is really, it's a, it's a reflection of your reputation and what people say about you when you're not in the room. And so you need to be the CEO of brand you and you develop the narrative and how you want people to see you, but what it is not singularly. And this is where I think people kind of trip up. They seem to think it's just, it's my job title and the company I work for, or the function or role that I, that I'm in more broadly. It is so much more than that. That's definitely, you know, one part of it. So if we were going to look at, you know, foundationally, what is it for sure? What is your expertise? whether that's the job function or the industry or the intersectionality between those things that you have. Definitely, you want to be known for that. But then beyond that, I, as we talked about humanity in, you know, and authenticity, um, you know, in, as a leader, that, that's at every level within the organization. So what are you passionate about? And so for me, yes, I've been a corporate executive, but I'm passionate about diversity, inclusion, about leadership and culture, around leaving a lasting, you know, impact. Those are things I'm really passionate about that. Yes, they're connected to my day job, but I speak about it outside of that. They also need to think about what makes you different than others. Mm -hmm. And so some of that's going to be your lived in lived experience and the story you share that builds connection with other people. Um, It can be, you know, some of the things when I first I'm networking with new people, one, I'm just trying to build an authentic relationship with someone, but find them where we have commonality. Kids is an easy one. Sports is another, like figure out what that is. Um, and, but be uniquely you understand much like you sell a product or service or you work for a company and you can understand why it's better or different than another same thing about you. So understand what makes you different. And then I always say, focus on what do you want to be known for? You know, it's not just, I'm, you know, I've been really, I've been a part of 18 mergers and acquisitions um, in my career thus far. Uh, and I'm known as the turnaround queen. I take distressed businesses and turn them around. Well, on my tombstone, it's not going to talk about the sales or the profit that I made for any of the companies that I work for. So think also around what do you want to be known for? So for me, it's around this, the impact I want to have on all those around me in workplaces and community and creating a much better workplace and world, quite frankly. So that's what I would say is, you know, thinking about that. And then there, I mean, I don't think you can have a strong network. I think they're so inter, interconnected. You need a strong brand to start to build a strong network. Um, and, you know, a network is a reflection of your brand. And so just understand the connectedness and, um, you know, how that can help you achieve your goals, whether it's getting a new job or getting promoted or, you know, selling to new clients. Yes, yes. Building a strong brand will actually help you to create your network because then you will draw those like-minded people to you and those people who require those services or whatever your niche is, you'll, you'll generate around those people. And I think we often, when we think about a brand, I think a lot of people think about, like you mentioned, your job title and where you work, but that's not it. Because if that were it, if you left that job or if you change titles or if you change companies, then what happens to your brand? So your brand is something that, like you say, you will be known for. It's something that will follow you. And it's something that we need to work on building and creating, nurturing and growing as we grow and as we move. 
I'm totally, again, in alignment with you on that. I totally agree with you on that. So, so tell me, do you have anything that you would like to leave our listeners with? Do you have any offers or are there any, um, can you tell us where we can find you? Any last famous words? Well, I don't want to say it like that, but any, <laughs> any final well, thoughts? <laughs> that, that's good, Beverly. So, so first of all, I'll tell your audience, they can find me. I have a website, which is victoria-peltier.com, which is just my last name. And they can choose to connect with me on whatever social platform from there, whether that's LinkedIn or, or Facebook or Instagram or whatnot. Um, but I publish a ton of, like, I write a ton of content on many of the things that we're talking about today um, and share when I'm regularly on media and things like that um, and learn more about me as a speaker. So find me there. Um, and then, you know, what I would, um, parting words, I'm actually going to leave you with one of my most favorite quotes um, is by Georgia Dare. And it, says that everything you've ever wanted lives on the other side of fear. And I share that just because I think, you know, when we think about, you know, how we are in control of how we show up, you know, the, I'm, one of my mottos is about being unstoppable. Like you define what success looks like. You define, um, uh, you know, what your, your life is going to look like, but what holds us back in many cases uh, is fear. Um, and even sometimes that as a leader, like the fear of being authentic, of, of telling, you know, stories and being vulnerable, but with um, getting beyond the fear and the discomfort um, for ourselves in our career um, or, you know, in leadership, I think that actually offers great opportunity for us to grow and develop. So I'll, I'll leave them with that quote. Wonderful. It lives on the other side of fear, people. So get out there, get it. Don't be afraid. You got to step out and make mistakes in order to grow. That's how you'll get there. And I always say when I make a mistake or when I make an error, I say I either win or I learn. I never lose. So just keep that in mind. Thank you so much, Victoria. You are powerful. You are distinguished. You are very well-spoken. You're impressive. And I'm just so thrilled that you chose to spend some time with us today. And I thank you very much for your time. Thanks for having me. We hope we have delivered helpful and enlightening information to help you create your dream team. Join us next time. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Team Building Cultures.